Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's start there. Um, it truly is an honor for me to be here. Uh, <laughs> and it is surreal, as I said. I mean, there's, there's, I guess there's a part of me that maybe that selfishly just wants to sit here and indulge this moment while you're all staring at me, wondering what I'm going to do or say next. Um, but uh, Steve has been a friend and a mentor to me for many, many years, and Steve and Mary mean so much to Marie and I. Uh, uh, we treasure them. We really do. Uh, they've been such a blessing. I, um, I was at this church when Steve first planted it uh, in 2008. There was a, just a group of us in a living room talking about what a church plant would look like, and I had really no idea about anything ministry-wise. Um, I was just excited uh, to, to be a part of something, and I won't get into all the stories of how I met Steve. I'd love to tell you maybe at the picnic or after some time, because we will be here for the picnic as well. Um, but uh, this church really is where I, I cut my teeth regarding how ministry happens. Uh, this is where I, I, I learned so much here. In fact, I remember even in those early days, Steve was teaching through the book of Titus, uh, just about what the church is and what the church is supposed to be. And it, it was really mind-blowing for me uh, personally. And so I was here, um, went to seminary in 2009, graduated in 2012. I worked at this church then for three years, and I know many of you, and I love so many of you. Um, where are the Agapitas people? They're around here somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. And so it was just, it was basically all the people that had just finished high school and the people that hadn't been married yet. We kind of had our own group, and, and uh, I was uh, shepherding them as an under-shepherd of the under-shepherd. Uh, and then they started getting married, and they started having babies. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm shipped out to Virginia with my family where I've been now for the last six years. But Steve and I have remained in close contact since then. And Mary, of course, has remained in close contact with us as well. Um, and uh, we just, we treasure them. And we treasure all of you. Um, and some of you may or may not be aware of some of the troubles that I've encountered in pastoral ministry there in Chesapeake, uh, Virginia. Uh, and Steve has been a huge encouragement to me. Um, there was a period when I was talking to Steve two or three times a week, um, sending him emails that I was getting from disgruntled individuals and uh, telling him about the comments I was getting, and, and he was pastoring me from a distance. And he still continues to pastor me uh, from a distance. And when I talk about Steve to other people, I don't, I don't say Steve my friend or Steve my mentor. I always say my pastor in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> because that's who he is, and that's what he's always been for me, um, even from the first time I met him back in 2005 or somewhere around there, six, that time. He's, he's been a faithful, patient shepherd. And of course, Steve and Mary are not the only ones we love here. Um, there's so many of you that I have enjoyed seeing, and I'm looking at your faces now, even as I look through here. So praise God. For all of you, we... Uh, we look forward to this trip. Of course, you're invited to Chesapeake, Virginia. We're right on the border of Chesapeake and Norfolk, right by Virginia Beach. It's beautiful in the winter. So please come out and visit us. Uh, come visit us. We would love to have you. Some of you have joined that exclusive club. Um, see some of you out there. Well, um, without going into too much detail, uh, uh, the church that I pastor has kind of been through the ringer. Uh, it went well for a little while until it didn't. Um, 
And that's kind of how it goes, I'm learning. And even in some of the pastors' conferences that I've been to, um, many of the pastors that I speak to will say things to me like, oh yeah, I remember that. (laughs) There's a strange comfort in that, uh, but it's still very difficult. Uh, Just to give you kind of a brief synopsis, God really has blessed the church with a lot of new life, a lot of people coming, even individuals that had been there for a while were growing. Uh, They were really thankful for the word that was being preached. Things were happening But there was a group within the church that was not so happy uh, with some of the things that were happening. Uh, They didn't like how things were going. Uh, Things that they had been used to were changed, and they were beginning to feel a little excluded. Uh, They didn't like my style of preaching. Uh, They thought that some of the decisions that were being made uh, were just a little too not what they wanted. Um, And and I I don't want to pin all the blame on that group in particular. There were times when things could have been communicated better, and Satan was certainly active, exploiting my weaknesses as well as the weaknesses of everyone else involved. And let me tell you something. The gossip mill was humming at full capacity. So perceptions became reality, and in the end, we lost about 35% of the church body. It was about 40 people. We had about 110 people. Um, And that 35% included uh, four of the seven leaders that I served with. So in January, we started the the year uh, with seven deacons or delders, whatever you want to call them. Deacons that basically function like elders. Um, And by April, four of them had resigned. Um, It was really hard. It was really hard. Uh, and I praise God for the people that remain. Right now, we're kind of over that hump, and now uh, there's a good group of about 70 of us that are excited about the ministry, and we're united, and now we're just figuring out how to, how to move forward. Of course, of those 70, they're still human, uh, and that's always hard. I'm still human, uh, and so we're figuring it out and working through it, but at least we're on the same page. So I praise God for that. Uh, now, as, as I reflected on what had happened, Uh, And as I reflected on on what could have possibly been done uh, to prevent some of the division and the dissension, and it's amazing how much that occupies your mind. I've always felt like this is probably the closest to a divorce I'd ever feel. Uh, And that's, that's, that's kind of the awkwardness, you know, being divorced from 40 people is kind of how it feels. Because these were people that I loved. These were people that loved me. Uh, And so I thought, and and to see them go was was very difficult. And as I reflected on that and and what could have possibly prevented it, I realized that really what, what our church needed is the same thing that every single church needs. It's in fact the most important thing in church life It is a fundamental attitude that gets talked about a lot, but often it isn't clearly defined, and that's love. It's love. Love is the supreme virtue, and it should be the defining mark of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ himself, of course, he sets the example. And so with that in mind, what I did is I I spent three weeks uh, in June going through 1 Corinthians 13 for the church, not just for my own soul, but for their souls as well. And so what I've done for you is I've kind of taken those three messages and I smooshed them together. And so that's what I'm going to preach to you this morning. 
Um, and I, I, I believe every church needs to be reminded of this. Every church needs to be reminded. The importance of love in a Christian fellowship, it cannot be overstated. And we see this in Scripture. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 remind us that the church was formed in love. The church is to be built up in love, Ephesians 4, 16. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of Scripture passages at you. So if you want to write these down or whatever you usually do, you can and look all of these up. But when you go through the penelope of Scripture, uh, there's all sorts of reminders of this. The church was built up in love. Colossians 3.14 says it is to be characterized by love and bound together in love. Uh, the church is to pursue love above all things, 1 Corinthians 14.1 teaches. And our love, Romans 12.9 says, is to be genuine and sincere. And it's not an overstatement to say that a defining mark of Christ's church is love. And so is the defining mark of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, All that we do is to be done in love. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.13 tells us we are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Is that enough? One more. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There are more, but I think you understand the point. We are called to love. That's what we're called to. It would be more accurate to say we are called to take the love that God has given us and manifest that love in the world through how we interact and relate to one another. And Jesus said, the one command I give you is that you what? Love one another. The world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one. See, we all know. We all know. See, if we lose love, if churches lose love, we lose everything. And we live in a world that desperately needs to see genuine Christian love on display. That's why Jesus told the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, essentially, love or die. Now, this is not going to happen automatically unless we learn to cultivate it, to guard it, and to practice it. That's why Jesus said, the one command I give you is that you love one another. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, in that passage, Paul lists a series of attitudes we are to put on, and then says in 3.14, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, love is a glue that holds everything together. It holds the church together. And when that glue is weak, the church becomes brittle. 
Alexander Strauch, who uh, wrote a book called Love or Die, based on Revelation 2.4, and I would commend that book to you, he says this, the nurture and practice of love is a life and death issue to the local church. It is our responsibility, both individually and corporately, to cultivate and guard love. We must learn how to grow in love as individuals and as a church family. We must motivate ourselves and others to love in deed and truth, 1 John 3.18. And when love is dying, we must revive and restore the pursuit of love. Now, in full disclosure, Pastor Steve or any of your elders have told me nothing about any problems going on at this church or anything like that. I am reminded over and over again. I just want to make that clear. Steve did not bring me in to speak to our church needs a message on love. We're terrible at it. No, that's not what happened. All right. If anything, I keep hearing about how loving you all are from Steve and how much he loves you and appreciates you. And I think of what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, I believe, uh, Christ is able to cause your love to abound and may your love abound more and more, he prays in Philippians 1. And so we can all improve, amen? Amen. So just take that in, 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 in mind and in stride. Well, as I studied love further, it became clear that Satan has convinced the world that love is something that it is not. See, in our culture, love is, is, is tolerance and it's, it's acceptance of another person's view. In society today, sadly, even in some churches and certainly in some social media outlets, love is weaponized as a damning criticism against individuals who either, number one, do not meet certain standards or expectations, or number two, causes a person to feel bad. If something you do or say causes another person to feel bad, you are accused of being unloving. Often, when these kinds of accusations of a lack of love begin to fly, love stops and everyone just starts pointing fingers. I mean, if, if you're hurt by something somebody says, and maybe, maybe somebody isn't loving you well, when you cross your arms and you furrow your brow against them and you say, you're not loving me, you should be looking in a mirror. Because if you loved the individual who's not loving you, you wouldn't get angry at them and separate yourself from them. You would come alongside them as a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, listen, I've noticed some things about your behavior that concern me, and because I love you, I want to help you. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Well, Christian, and I, I say this with the full authority of the Scriptures, the health and life of any church depends on an accurate understanding of and devotion to biblical love. Without love, we're nothing. So how are we doing? How are we doing? I think anyone who takes an honest look at themselves is going to find a lot of room for improvement. Amen? If that's you, don't be discouraged. And as I wrote this and thought about this, I kind of went, oh. <laughs> Then I remembered Romans 5.5. 5. Romans 5.5 5 says this. Listen to this. God's love has been poured into your hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God gives us the love that he requires from us. And so we can learn about love and we can say, I I can't do that. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he dwelling in you? Then yes, you can. We can do this because we have the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And the Bible says that he is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see? It's an amazing thing that God has given us in his Holy Spirit, including the capacity to love like this. That's why when the scriptures tell us to imitate Christ's love, we do not say, well, Jesus can do that, I can't. We have his spirit dwelling in us. Now, we're not very good at it, but we can do this. But of course, that makes me wonder, do you know this love? Do you know this love? Does it amaze you that God loves you? Does it amaze you that God loves you? I I think as Christians, we can kind of get into a pattern of thinking and behavior where we understand the gospel, we move on, but we forget to just sit and think about the fact that God loves you. When was the last time that it hit you? That the only thing that saved you from God's wrath was God's love for you in Christ. He did not let you die in your sins. He washed you and he regenerated you. Do any of you remember what your life was like before Jesus? I do. It wasn't pretty, was it? It wasn't pretty. Who would you be or where would you be had it not been for Christ? Why are you here? Why are you not sleeping in, still dead in your sins? The Bible tells us why, and it's in Ephesians 2, 4, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, according to the prince of this world, according to all of those horrible things, following after the lusts of your flesh. Ephesians 2, 4 tells us what happened. It says, but what? But God, but God who is rich in mercy, listen to this, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Don't pass over that too quickly. Turn that phrase over in your mind. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Go home and look in the mirror and say, I am alive because of God's great love for me. Remind yourself of that. And this is not a sentimental love based on feelings or emotions. It's not like God looked down on us in our putrid, heinous sin and said, oh, they're so cute. Oh, anything but. This is a real, 
self-sacrificing love from God to us. Let's not allow the misunderstandings or abuses of love cause us to neglect the fact that God's design for his church is that his love would pour into our hearts and that his love being poured into the hearts of his people would flow out to one another and towards the rest of the world, not just nice feelings, not just good vibes, not just empty sentiment or a few kind words, but genuine, Christ-exalting, Christ-imitating, and Holy Spirit-motivated love. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3.19. He says, to this end, he prays, that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that, and in the knowledge of that love, in the knowledge of that fullness and beautiful love, we would be filled up to all the fullness of God. And the idea there is satisfaction. You ever eaten a good steak? How do you feel after that? Oh. That's the idea. We would be filled up with the fullness of God. You're you're resting in God's love for you. You are abiding in it as Christ commands. And then that love is flowing out of you, bearing fruit and producing joy. That's the design. Now, any Christian, I believe, who's hearing what I'm saying, they're going to say, you know what, that sounds wonderful. I mean, raise your hand if you don't want more love in your life. Raise your hand if you don't want to be more loving. Raise your hand if you don't. Of course we want to be more loving. That, that, that sounds great. But even as we're imagining it together, we're going to bring all different kinds of expectations of what that might look like. And without a biblical informed, a biblically informed understanding of Love, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. So we need to let the word of God rearrange our thinking when it comes to love. And for that, we look to 1 Corinthians 13. So you all got it in your Bibles open, right? I'm going to read this text, and then I'm going to pray. And then in our time remaining, we're going to look at a few verses together. Beginning in verse 4, I'll read to the first part of verse 8. And I am also reading from the NASB. I brought my trusty NASB Bible for when I come back to Beacon. It says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Pray with me if you would. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, 
the one that has loved us to the very end and will love us into all eternity. God, who are we to deserve this love? Oh, your mercy and your patience and your kindness towards us. Oh God, thank you so much. I pray that you would expand our hearts and our minds to this understanding and may that love that has been poured into our hearts then flow out of us to each other. I pray, God, that you would use this message in whatever way you will. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would overcome anything that I say that misspeaks or misrepresents your word. I just pray that your Spirit would open up hearts and minds to Receive this truth and be changed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, just to give you a little background on 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this book to a church that was pretty much in every respect not displaying the love that Paul describes. Uh, they were arrogant. They were divisive. They were self-absorbed. They were sexually immoral. They were jealous. And they were self deceived. And so Paul wrote this letter as a rebuke. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, uh, that's the centerpiece of a section on spiritual gifts, which is really 12 through 14. And so Paul clearly affirms that they have the Spirit of God, but their selfishness and their lack of love had caused them to abuse each other and misunderstand God's whole purpose for spiritual gifts to begin with. And the more prominent members, they thought that they were better than everyone else. And the less prominent members were jealous. And so Paul's assessment was very simple. They lacked love. He says, in a sense, you want the highest and greatest gifts? You want to be the best at your church? I'm going to show you something even higher and greater than all the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13. That's kind of how... He starts. You see, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, he was not thinking about how nice it would sound at weddings. It was a rebuke. He was trying to bring them back to center. And it really serves the same purpose for the church today. And I just want you to take a peek at 1227. Verse 27 says this. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. They were Christ's body. Christ is the head. They are the body. And he he says this in, in very lengthy terms in this book several times. And so as Christ's body, assuming the spirit dwells in them, which Paul assumed that he did, assuming that their doctrine was sound and in line with scriptures, and it was, How is Christ's body to be united and built up in a way that honors Christ? That is the question. And that should be the same question for all of you involved in this church today. You are not spectators here for the leadership and for the people that are serving. You guys are a body together. And Christ is your head. I heard someone say, you know, the, 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 the pastor... Is, is not an actor on stage. The pastor is, is the one that's, that's giving all the lines. You guys are the actors. You're Christ's body. You're a part of this fellowship. And how are you to be built up and united? Well, I, I, I don't want to uh, 
sound too simplistic, and I certainly am not going to pretend that this is easy, uh, but I believe that the answer is to prayerfully and in full dependence on the Holy Spirit, cultivate in your own hearts and minds what is described in 1 Corinthians 13. And so we must confess at the very beginning that we will fall short, and that doesn't mean that we cannot grow. There will be ups and downs. There always are. But the hope in prayer is that by this time next year, Beacon of Hope Church will be a more loving church than they are today. Right? Wouldn't that be a great goal? You say, I can't wait till everyone loves me more. The responsibility is placed on you. The only way Beacon of Hope Church is going to be a more loving church next year is if you begin with yourself and in your own heart. That's the hope, though. And not just more love for one another, but more love for Christ and more love for the world that desperately needs him. I just want to share this prayer with you, and this is a prayer that you can start praying for your church. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a fantastic prayer to pray for your church. And so Paul launches into this in 1 Corinthians 13, and he kind of sets the scene in the first three verses. Uh, I love this. Paul describes the Christian with all the options. And this is kind of the model Christian that we think in our minds of what we want to be. You know, they speak very eloquently. They have all knowledge and wisdom. They have rock-solid faith. They're sacrificially generous. They're even willing to suffer and die for Christ. Sign this guy up to teach a Bible study. This is an elder candidate. This is a person that always has the right answer. He's always at every fellowship and meeting. Everyone is just encouraged and strengthened by him. He is the total package. That's what Paul presents before them because that's essentially what they were trying to do. And Paul says, without love, he's what? He's nothing. He's nothing. And the reverse side of that is if you feel like you don't have anything to contribute to your church, if you think, boy, I wish I had his intelligence or his wisdom or his ability or his this or his that, Guess what you can improve in? Love. Right? Love before giftedness. What is love? Are you going to get there, Jake? Yes. Well, in this chapter, there are 15 characteristics of love. These are trademarks. It's as if the Apostle Paul is breaking down love into simpler components that we can understand and measure ourselves by. Now, we, before we dive into what these components are, uh, we need to stress that these are present verbs. What does that mean? It, it means that they denote continuous action. In other words, just using the first one, love is patient. 
Um, Love is not characterized by patience per se. Love practices patience continuously. It doesn't mean that love feels patient. It practices patience. That's an important distinction because it's really easy for us to assume that when we don't feel patient, we're not being loving. But guess what? You can practice patience without feeling it. Right? I'm not saying it's easy. Would that we would be able to be like, oh, so patient. I would love that. It's like, I don't want to fight against sin. I just don't want to be tempted anymore. Right? No. Love practices patience. And I think God has done that deliberately to show us that when you're not feeling patient, it doesn't mean that you're not loving in that moment. But you've got a choice to make, don't you? You've got a choice to make. This is love, and it's an important distinction. And, and just so you know, a big part of what it means to love, and this is kind of the key to all of Christian life, it's, it's learning to bring your heart and mind under the word of God, right? Not allow your feelings to dictate your actions or your perceptions, but bringing your heart and mind under the word of God. Too easy? Of course not. But that is really the pattern. So love is patient. That's the first one. And, and we're only going to get through two this morning. Um, I'm just being real with you. Okay? Uh, some of you will be way too hungry if I just continue to go. Love is patient. Love acts patiently. That, that word, it means to bear up under provocation without complaint. Love bears up being provoked without complaint. This describes a person who, when wronged by individuals, does not insist on vengeance or retribution. And vengeance and retribution, it comes in many forms. You can say nothing and fume with bitterness and anger by not dealing with the issue in your human heart. A very common form of retribution is gossip and slander. You know, the Bible equates gossip and slander with murder. You're murdering someone's character. You see, you can be wronged by someone. Somebody could sin against you, do something against you, and you can feel it, and you can think that you're being loving by not lashing out at the person directly, but behind their back, you're tearing them apart. Say, well, I'm I'm not going to say anything, you know, because I'm going to love them, but I want you to know about how terrible they are, and I want you to know about how terrible they are. And, and I just want to tell you that if, if I do something like that against you, I'd much rather have you come after me, right? And I'm sure you would as well. Now, there's a fine line. I understand it. It's good to have wise and godly friends that you can talk to that will hopefully keep you straight and prevent you from veering into that. But if we're not careful this can become a kind of retaliation against the person that you feel has wronged you. And it's sin. 
Now, it's also important to recognize the distinction between patience and indifference. There are many things that can be overlooked. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, but there are some things that need loving confrontation, even intervention with others. I mean, just to give you an extreme example, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're not being unloving by seeking help from other people. And you're not seeking help just for your own sake. You're seeking it for the sake of the sinner. Now, there's going to be lots of different nuances of application when it comes to this. And we're not always going to get it right. But as a general principle, we need to recognize that a loving person is first patient. They're not known for their short fuse. They resist their instinct to retaliate against those who assault their personal rights and privileges. They learn to bear with the weaknesses and sins of others. Oh, you're going to have a miserable time in a healthy church community if you don't learn to bear with the sins and weaknesses of others. Many people assume that the healthier the church, the less sins and weaknesses. doesn't work that way. Not if you're evangelizing, right? No, the healthier the church, the more toleration for sins and weaknesses that body has, right? It's a big difference. So I love first is patient. And just as a side note, when you read uh, the Apostle Paul talking about the attitudes and behaviors we're supposed to have one another, he doesn't say, find a church where you don't need to be patient, right? It's part of the, it's part of the deal. It's what we signed up for. So, Chrysostom, and by the way, Chrysostom is a 4th century expositor, very interesting guy. He has a fantastic message on this passage that I would encourage you to read, um, along with all the other church father readings I'm sure you're doing. Um, It's kind of a joke. (laughs) But anyways, he says this. uh, I don't have the quote. He, He compares a patient person to a strong city with high walls that nothing penetrates. You think about that. You learn to practice patience and what's going to end up happening is nothing is going to be able to get to you. Right? All the offenses and grievances, they just bounce right off of you. And that peace within is protected. And that's the amazing thing about cultivating this kind of Christ-centered patience. It steadies us. It makes us a stabilizing influence in Christ's church and in the world. Uh, Too many people fly off the handle for the smallest of things. It's no wonder we're tearing each other's hair out. It's because we're we're not learning patience and, and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to make us that impenetrable wall. Oh, how we need people that lovingly and graciously bear with the weaknesses, sins, and frustrations of others. It doesn't mean that we don't confront. It means that when we do confront and it doesn't go as we ought, we don't say, well, forget you. Here I am trying to love you, and you're just yelling at me. No. It means that if that happens, we, we remain patient. Sometimes the real test of your patience is after the confrontation. Well, much more could be said about patience, but let me just encourage you 
to lovingly confront when necessary, but cultivate the the ability to tolerate the faults of others. Secondly, love is kind. Love is kind. And this is such a beautiful contrast to patience. Love is patient and love is kind. It's just like peanut butter and jelly. See, I I need Jeremiah to help me with some sort of design reference. Um, (laughs) What colors go together. It's like it's like brown or black and navy blue. That's a joke. Sorry. (laughs) Some of you are like, is he serious? No. No, These two things complement each other so well. And to be a loving person, you can't really have one without the other. Um, Kindness is a word that speaks of active generosity. And that's the idea. It is goodness. It's, It's a kind of person who actively seeks to be useful and to be helpful to others. A kind person. They're generous with their their time, their talents, or or any other resources that they have to help their church and the individuals in their church succeed and prosper. Uh, I will tell you that I was the recipient of this kind of kindness from this church when I moved out to Chesapeake, Virginia. I had people over to my house constantly fixing my roof, thank you, brother, doing all of these different things, doing yard work and and everything else. And and I'm looking at these, and I just want to thank you publicly. I don't take away from the message here. Uh, But I just praise God for all of you, and I won't embarrass anyone. But that is kindness. It's, oh, somebody needs help in my church. What can we do? And I saw it over and over and over again. Agapitas even, uh, and I didn't discover this until years after, uh, they, wrote, they gave us a, a picture frame, and then they wrote a letter, a personal letter to each of us and put them in the back of the picture frame for when times got tough. And I want you to know that I pulled those out several times and read through them and just cried because I missed you. Um, that's kindness. And of course, God is the example, right? And think of it this way. Patience absorbs, kindness gives. Patience absorbs, kindness gives. And you can be a patient person and you can kind of huddle into your own shell. But it's that kindness that enables you to reach out and give to that person that has just wronged you. Right? God is not only incredibly patient towards us, His kindness reached out to us and provided something that we desperately needed in abundance. Amen? And just flip over to Titus 3. Flip over to Titus 3. This passage, it's really incredible. Steve said I had 120 minutes, so I'm still doing good. <laughs> Listen to what Titus 3.3 says. And you can even start at the beginning, remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, okay? So it's a pretty clear command for us to really have the utmost character. And here, here's kind of the motivation, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions or lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Sounds like a lovable bunch, doesn't it? Sound like a lovable bunch? He's saying that's who you were. That's who you were. What happened? What happened? Verse 4. But when the what? The kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. And just so you know, that word love, it's the same word translated loving kindness. It's chesed in the Hebrew. We, we did that in Psalm 136 today, right? 136, right? Yeah, okay, good. His chesed, his loving kindness endures forever. Same word, but that word is put together with the word kindness. That's the noun form of the verb in 1 Corinthians 13. Same word. And when those two things, when the loving kindness and the kindness of God appeared. And so that's the scene in Titus 3, 3 through 4. We are wicked. We deserve nothing from God, but God's generosity and his affectionate concern for mankind appeared. And when those two things appeared, what happened? It's in your Bible. He saved us. He saved us. How did he save us? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is an exercise of God's kindness, reaching out to us actively and generously to us. You see, God's salvation of us was total. He didn't just give us the bare minimum. He didn't just say, well, I'll forgive your sins because I'm that gracious. He says, no, I am going to adopt you as my own child and I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you which will enable you to turn from the sin that is killing you and follow after Christ. It's his kindness. That means that we not only have the forgiveness of our sins, we have new hearts and new minds that have both the desire and the capacity to love as God loves. And we see Christ say this in in John 15. He says, abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Follow me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we think, oh yes, loving is this big striving thing. But he's giving us the alternative to a life of futility and selfishness. That's why he says at the end of that passage, he says, I've written these things to you so that you may have my joy and that your joy would be made full. It's kindness. And to know this and to embrace this is to set yourself on the path of peace and joy. This is an extension of God's kindness. His kindness compels him to say, I'm not just going to forgive them. I'm going to give them my son and bring them into my family. This is love. This is love. This is what God has done for us. 
Love acts patiently towards others, and it acts kindly towards others. And love is exemplified by God in Christ to us. And the reason I say this is because many of us, I'm sure, want to be more loving people. And, and I just want to mention to you that if, if, you, if you strive to be a more loving person without grasping and resting in and understanding how deep and how great God's love is for you in Christ, you're going to have a really hard time to try to love beyond your understanding of God's love for you in Jesus is going to frustrate you. You're either going to become arrogant or you're going to despair. And so a part of what it means to grow in your love as a congregation and as a fellowship is to study Christ, to know Christ. Not just his attributes in a theology book, but to prayerfully learn to know and understand his love for you and his love for his church. I mean, imagine a church full of people like that. That's what I want. And as soon as I think about that and I pray about it, I got to look in the mirror and I got to go, okay. Well, those are two. And you can read the rest of them. A lot of them are self-explanatory. I'm not going to go into the rest of them. Um, I'd recommend Strauch's book to you. He also has a little thin one called 15 Characteristics of Love that is excellent. Um, it's, just an, it's actually an excerpt from his book, Leading with Love, which is also excellent. Just about anything by Alexander Strauch is excellent. Um, and I just heard Steve say it is, so he doesn't have to correct me. His endorsement as well. Steve and I both love Alex. We're thankful for him. Um, and he's a man that knows how to love. He probably wouldn't say that, but that's kind of how it goes. Well, I'm not going to go through the rest of them, but as we wind down, I, I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. Uh, number one, I mean, this is something that we really got to grasp. The study and pursuit of love, it needs to be a lifelong commitment for the Christian. It, it, it needs to be a lifelong commitment for the Christian. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is so important. And there are many other texts that help frame our thinking about love biblically. And you can start by praying that God would help you be a more loving person that is patient and kind. That, that's not a bad prayer to pray. Be more patient and kind. Not be envious. Not be boastful, arrogant, rude, or any of those other things. Study and pursuit of love, it needs to be a lifelong commitment and it's going to be a lifelong process for every Christian. Secondly, um, as I studied love for several weeks, not only was I incredibly convicted, what I learned from the scriptures, especially from what love is not, which I didn't cover this morning, I couldn't help but notice, and you'll notice this too if you read through those characteristics, it is impossible to be a loving person if you are preoccupied with yourself. 
You cannot be a loving person if you're preoccupied with yourself. Love requires self-denial. It really does. And, and I think it requires a habit of self-denial. Not just saying, okay, I'm going to deny myself in this moment so that I can love this person, but every other moment, I'm not going to deny myself. No, it's really a, a practice. And, and really what it requires, and this is hard for us, this is when I kind of start stepping on some toes. It requires an attitude that can say sincerely, other people are more important than me. Other people are more important than me. You see, our lack of love, it really comes down to a lack of humility. We have a very difficult time seeing others as more significant than ourselves. Let's just admit it. Right? Isn't that the first step to healing? I mean, if you're crossing your arms and you're saying, not me. I think we have a hard time with this. We're too proud to love. Too proud at every level. And I have a quote from another little book that I know Steve would commend to you. It was written by a Frenchman named Jean Calvin. Many of you are familiar with him. He wrote a book called The Little Book on the Christian Life. And I remember because Steve called me and he was all excited about it because he was reading through it. And we were like, we should just get copies for every member of our churches. Uh, this is what he says. He's talking about this idea of humility. He says, the poor, they yield to the rich. The common people to the upper ten. The servants to their masters. The ignorant to the scholars. But there is nobody who does not imagine that he is really better than the others. It's true. Everyone flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. Everyone is self-complacent and passes censure on the ideas and conduct of others. And if there is a quarrel, there is an eruption of poison. Many discover some gentleness in others as long as they find everything pleasant and amiable. But how many keep their good humor if they are disturbed and irritated? I mean, you want to know whether or not you lack humility? Watch your heart when someone crosses you. And then you can say, oh, <laughs> I didn't know I thought I was better than that person. Right? And then you get humbled and then you go to the cross and, and you, remember, you remember that in spite of our own failures and lack of love, Christ did not fail in his love for us. Right? Christ is not exasperated with us. He loves us. And yes, sometimes he may chide us as he did his own disciples. But there is a foundation and a set and a security there of God's great love for us in Christ. And he promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. I love what God says in Romans 8. He says, if, if he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, you were way worse than you were when Christ died for you, and so he's not going to abandon you.
Well, the key action to love then is an attitude of humility. And this is not a popular thing in our culture. I think every Christian wants to grow in love. And I fervently pray towards that end. But, but are we willing to pray, Lord, deflate my sense of self-importance? Now, you remember what John the Baptist said in John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, obviously, we need a lot of help. We can start praying. And just remember, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I'm going to end with a quote from John Newton. Then I'm going to pray. This is brief. He said, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of knowing you. I rejoice in the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And Father, while we're here, you desire us to be faithful. And I know that begins and ends in many ways with love. So I pray for this church, Lord. Help this church increase and abound more and more in all love and discernment. And Father, I know it's possible because the Apostle Paul himself says, I have heard of your love. And I know it's happening because I hear from Steve and others of the love that exists here. And I just pray, Father, that it would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here that perhaps is on the fringes, anyone here that is struggling, I pray, Father, that they would be embraced with open arms uh, by the members of this fellowship and loved dearly and sincerely. Oh God, I pray that you would help this church grow in love. I pray that you would help the church I pastor in Chesapeake, Virginia, to grow in love. And Father, even as I pray, I I just want to thank you for the great love that you have for us. Thank you, Father, for your infinite capacity to love. Thank you for your sovereignty, for your promises that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, that even as we stand here, we can rest secure in what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. And we are united to him. And that's a union that cannot be broken. I praise you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.